Well, good morning, family. Good to see you all. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Acts and to chapter 6 as we continue our journey through this account of the early days of the church. And we are looking specifically through the lens of the mission of the church and, in perspective, our mission as well. Acts chapter 6 starts off, now in these days, this young church has withstood two dangerous attacks from Satan to undermine their mission. We saw a few weeks ago there was first persecution from the opposition, the opponents, the religious leaders who sought to shut them down. And, and then last week there's the attack from within, a, a more subtle but equally dangerous attack of, of impurity, hypocrisy, polluting the church from the inside. There was at the end of chapter 5, we won't read the story this morning, but I encourage you to go back and look at the end of chapter 5. Uh, we're skipping past, but another account of some persecution, and, and uh, I think it shows God has a sense of humor, but that's another story. Uh, I'll let you go read that. But at the end, it seems that here as we come to chapter 6 and verse 1, there is a, a period of peace for the church, and things are going well. There are perhaps at this point in time some twenty to 30,000 believers in the church and it's still growing. The Jewish leaders have said that back at the end of chapter 5 and verse 28, said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And if you think back to Jesus' mission to the apostles, it was, and to us, it was, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it could be said at this point in time, at least from the, from the testimony of the opponents, that phase one of the mission has been accomplished. Jerusalem has been filled with the teaching. A number of years ago, I was at home and I was, it was about this time of year, it was fall, and I was, went home a little early to try to get some projects done for, uh, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I have this whole list of things that need to be done before the cold weather hits. And uh, as always, I'm running behind. And I ran home that day, thought, well, I'll tackle a couple of projects and, and uh, headed downstairs to go out through the lower level. And as I came down the stairs and turned the corner, I look over on top of our couch and there's a squirrel. And the squirrel looks at me. I don't know who of us was more surprised. We were like, and what do we do? You know, we both just kind of stand there for a bit, and I got to go, ah! And he goes, ah! <laughs> Squirrels do shriek, if you don't know that. When they get really startled, they shriek. And, and so, uh, like, i got to get this thing out of here. And so um, I, I run over quickly and open up the door, and I, I try to chase the squirrel out the door. Well, all that happens is... The squirrel and I run in circles. We are not getting anywhere. And uh, I'll run over this way. He'll run across the room. And he's not heading for the door at all. Not a very smart squirrel. And um, by the way, the only thing I can figure how he got in was he was up on my roof looking around, you know, and, and went over to the chimney, you know. Oh, I wonder what this is. <laughs> Fell down and came in. That's all I can figure. Anyway, so I'm not getting anywhere. So I decide, well, I need help. 
Well, the only one home is my dog, so I go up and get my dog. And so now the dog and I and the squirrel are running around in circles. We didn't make any more progress, but we had more fun, and it was noisier. Because <laughs> the dog is barking, and, the, and I'm yelling, and the squirrel. And um, so eventually, as we're running around in circle, the squirrel finally gets an idea to do something different, and he runs up the stairs. Fortunately, I'd had the forethought to close the door at the top of the stairs. But now the squirrel is plastered on the door going to the house, and I hear my wife come in the kitchen. I sense disaster is about to happen as she's hearing a little ruckus because the dog is still barking, and and I think she's about to open the door, and so I yell, and fortunately uh, we didn't have another disaster because if she'd opened the door, she would have had a heart attack. Now we would have had a squirrel in the house, my wife with a heart attack, the dog barking, and that wouldn't have been good. So uh, I'm trying to figure out how to get the, this squirrel off the door because I'm at the bottom of the stairs. There's no way it's going to move. So I go around the corner. I tell my wife, uh, she's got the message now, there's a squirrel there. I tell her to bang on the door, and hopefully the squirrel will run downstairs. He did. And um, anyway, there's not much of a climax to the story. The squirrel eventually gave up trying to chase the squirrel out, left the door open, went and did other things, came downstairs, and the squirrel had eventually gone. The whole point of the story, if there is one, is that when we wander into places we ought not to go, even if it's a very comfortable place, (laughs) for a while at least, good things never really come about. This morning as we come here to this church in chapter 6 and everything is going marvelously in the church, they have weathered two dangers, but in this chapter they are going to encounter a third danger. We have mentioned before that in chapters 4, 5, and 6 we're going to see the church encounter three dangers, three potential impediments which will disrail, disrupt, and perhaps end the mission of the church. Jesus gave us a mission to be His witnesses. But the mission then and today can always so easily be derailed. This third danger that we're going to see today is the danger of distraction. Getting sidetracked from the mission. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The danger manifests itself to this church in a couple of different ways in the passage before us. And both of these are commonplace. They're both very much alive and well in the modern church in our, in today. They're things that we still face today. And the first of these two ways that distraction shows up to the church is in the area of division. The church, as you will recall, as we've been going through, has been a remarkably united and loving group. But under the surface, there were tensions that had existed for a long time among these Jews before they became believers. 
All of these early believers were Jewish, but there were some distinctions, some divisions that existed among them. And especially there were, there were two big groups of the Jews. There were, as we read in our passage here, there were the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hebrews were the Jews who were born and living in Israel. Those Jews grew up speaking Hebrew and Aramaic, Jewish and Semitic languages, and they probably knew some Greek because they were under the Roman Empire, and that's the official trade language. The other Jews who are here and part of the church are Jews who are the Hellenists. They were foreign Jews, Jews who lived in other countries around the Roman Empire who were probably born there and were living there, and they they grew up speaking the language of the country they were from as well as Greek, but probably did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. There were, by the way, you may know or may remember that there at this time and ever since the Babylonian captivity, there were more Jews living outside of Israel than lived inside of Israel. And and that's part of the reason why on Pentecost and these other pilgrimage holidays, there were so many Jews who came, whereas the normal population of of Jerusalem was actually quite small. So all of these Jews are here and they're part of the church. They've been brought in. And and by the way, traditionally and and for centuries, the the Hebrew Jews kind of looked down on the Hellenist Jews as second-class Jews because they're not really from here. And all of these folks get saved. They are believers in Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. But they come into the church as believers and wouldn't you know it, they bring along some of the baggage of their past with them. Doesn't happen today, does it? (laughs) Of course it does. That that old sin nature comes along with us and every so often all those remnants of our past, those Feelings, those prejudices, those those problems, those tendencies, all of those things we have occasionally raise their ugly head in our lives and, and we have to deal with them. And so it was with this young church. We saw back as well in chapter 4 and 5 that the church was doing a good job of taking care of the, the needy in the church. But as this church grew and grew and grew and the church got bigger and the programs all got bigger, eventually some little things started to happen and a problem arises here in verse 1 of chapter 6. Some of the widows aren't getting their fair share of the daily distribution. And and by the way, some of your Bibles may say the distribution of food. If it does say that, you'll notice it's in italics. Whenever you see that in Scripture, know that that's not part of the original. In the Greek, it just says the daily distribution. It might have been food. It might have been uh, other supplies. It might have been uh, some money. But the point is, some of the widows aren't getting what other widows are getting And the Hellenists, the foreign Jews, say it's our widows who are getting neglected here and they blame the locals, the Hebrews. So you have the makings of a church fight. Now perhaps some of the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrew Jews, were really actually deliberately holding back from the Hellenists. 
That might have been the case. Or maybe it wasn't deliberate, but it was just a logistical problem. The Hellenist widows had more difficulty getting their allotment, getting the supplies because of language issues perhaps, or because of issues that dealt with the times or the location of the distribution. Or perhaps there really wasn't a problem, a real problem at all. It was a problem of perception. Because, let's face it, because of past experiences where there have been prejudice and difficulties, some of the, the Hellenists feel that they are being discriminated against, even whether they are or not. It really doesn't matter. We don't know a whole lot about the problem. All we simply know is that whether real or imagined, whether intentional or accidental, one group thinks there's a problem and the unity of this church is on the verge of collapse. It's perhaps significant, by the way, here that in verse 1, it's the first time in the book of Acts that believers are called disciples. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the word disciples means learners. <laughs> and, in other words, their work's in progress. And maybe that's part of the point here is the church is learning <laughs> that even as believers, problems will emerge at times. Obviously, we can say as we look at this as well that the Hellenists are not handling this in a proper way. Instead of going directly to the offending party, like we ought to, to work something out, or instead of going to the leaders, the apostles, as they perhaps ought to, they do like so many of us do today when something doesn't go the way we think it ought to. Instead of going to the offending party or going to the leadership, we just start talking to each other. It says grumbling, a complaint. That actually, that word, some of the translations may say grumbling. Or murmuring. May I say, if you look up any of those three words in the Bible, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, you will never find one time that the Scripture talks about those as a good thing. Never. To all of us who are inclined to do that, which last I checked is all of us, <laughs> it is never a good thing. Grumbling and complaining divides and destroys our relationships with one another. It pretty well ensures that something won't be handled constructively. And it destroys and damages our mission, our ability to witness for Christ. Paul makes this point pretty clearly over in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 and on. He says, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. I might try to rephrase it. He says that we'll shine like stars when we share the gospel if we are blameless and pure, which we won't be if we complain and grumble. You, you follow that? His thinking there? You and I will shine like stars when we hold out the gospel and we share the good news of Jesus if we're blameless and pure, but we won't be blameless and pure if we complain and grumble. So in other words, complaining and grumbling destroys our witness. That's why it's a big deal. 
Now what's interesting to me is there's the problem in this passage. This church has been on the move and effective in sharing the Gospel, growing like crazy, and united in one heart, in one mind, in one spirit, and here they come and there's division and it threatens to derail the mission. But while division is a big issue and a big distraction in the church, it's fascinating to me to notice that the apostles, when they address it in the next verse, they never even mention it directly. Rather, they focus on a more subtle but more dangerous manifestation of the real danger, which is distraction. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. The second distraction here is urgent needs. The second way that this distraction manifests itself is urgent needs. We saw in back earlier in chapter 4 and we saw in chapter 5 that that the apostles, the church, had already set up a program of caring for the needy. They see it as a legitimate need. They see it coming out of Scripture. We won't go there, but but you can go back and all these folks knew their Scriptures well. They knew that in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is a mandate for God's people to show concern and to make provision for the alien and the widow and the orphan. But here in this church, there are still now some widows who aren't getting their needs met. We wonder, how is it that an urgent need, that caring for the widows is somehow a danger and a distraction to the mission of the church? Well, the disciples respond by saying, this is a real need. They understand it's a legitimate need and it's a pressing need. And that this situation calls for a solution. But what they say here is it's going to take time and effort that will detract them from what must be their priority, which is preaching the Word of God. And as we'll see in just a moment in the verse 4, prayer as well. It will take them away from the Word of God and prayer. There's an old saying that most of us have heard and know well that the good is often the enemy of the best. And there's the problem. What is before them is a real need, a legitimate need, an urgent need, but it is not where they need to be spending their time. It is a distraction that will take them away from their mission. So the apostles have a solution. They refuse to fix the problem personally, but they will see that the problem is fixed. Their solution, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. 
And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a good many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The apostles' solution was they would gather together everyone, all of the church. This problem was affecting the entire church. And so they gathered the whole church to inform them and work with them. Then they explained the problem and also their firm priorities. That we need to devote ourselves to prayer, and as we saw again in verse 4, and also to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The apostles have been doing several things, but they are keenly aware that they now need to devote themselves and focus themselves exclusively upon these two things. They understand that the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to and through prayer to inform and to direct and to empower the church. And because the advancement of the gospel is their mission, they are saying these now must be and remain our focus. Up till this point, the apostles have been the ones who have been doing most of the teaching and the preaching and the evangelism. That's going to change in just a few chapters of this book of Acts. They are in the process of equipping the believers who will become, who will soon be unleashed to advance the gospel to new places. So they say these are our priorities. They lead. They lead with a plan. They exhibit leadership. They tell the folks, "Here's here's what we need to do. We're going to delegate this task of this problem of the of the tables of the distribution. We're going to delegate it to seven men." They list three qualifications that these men need to have. They need to have a good reputation. They need to be, they, they, all, everyone needs to say, yeah, these are good guys. They need to be men who are spiritual. They, they need to be full of the Spirit, godly men. And they need to be men who are full of wisdom. That means that they not just are godly men. They're not just folks who everybody likes, but they've got to be folks who have some common sense. Then they do something else that's really smart. They involve the congregation. Rather than just issuing edicts, they say, here's what needs to be done. Now you, congregation, you choose for yourselves seven men. The congregation does, and then they empower the seven. They pray over them, they commission them, and they delegate authority to these seven to begin work of ministry with the tables. And the problem is solved. The unity is restored. The widows are cared for. The church continues to grow. Many people are becoming believers, as we read. Even, it says, many of the priests. As we look at this story, I don't want you to miss some of the grace that is here. Because it's what we always need when we, when there are times of stress and strain and, and potential division in the church, how we need to be people of grace. The disciples model it. The first thing I realize is that the, the disciples don't become defensive, which I don't know about you, but that's always easy to do, isn't it? Become defensive when somebody raises a complaint. And after all, these guys are the guys in charge. <laughs> They're in charge not only of the church, but if you go back, when Barnabas came and laid his offering 
there that was to go to the needy. And when Ananias and Sapphira brought their gift, where did they bring it? At the, laid it at the feet of the apostles. The apostles were the ones at first who administrating all of this and getting it to the widows and the needy. And so it would be easy for the apostles to go, they're criticizing us. And here we are. All we do is work our fingers to the bone trying to serve the people. And all they do is complain, complain, complain. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? Yeah. And I'd get it if the disciples became a little defensive here. Not only are they the ones who are administrating all this, but they are part of the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrews, who the Hellenists are complaining about. We're not prejudiced. We don't. You know, I can see them. But you don't see that. There's grace. I also notice that they don't chastise the grumblers and complainers, which would be my first tendency. Look at these folks. They're not acting spiritually. <laughs> they should have been, you know, they should have dealt with this without grumbling and complaining. They should have gone to the right people in the first place. It, it never even says they came to the leadership. The leadership became aware there's going on out there. The disciples or the apostles here, I should say, Deal with this with grace. They say, folks, we've got a problem that we need to fix. But this problem comes not only with the danger of division, it, pro it comes with the danger of messing up our priorities. Let's deal with the problem rather than getting involved more in personal disputes. Don't you love that? You need to learn from that. I notice the congregation follows the lead as the apostles lead with grace in dealing with this. The congregation follows and responds with grace as they deal with this. They have been given the job. Now you are to, you are to come up with seven men who will take over this responsibility. And what's interesting is while the Hebrews, the locals, are the majority, and the Hellenists, the foreigners, are the minority. When you look at these seven people that they choose and they bring to the apostles, they bring all Hellenist Jews, all Greek Jews. Whereas you would think that what they would say, well, we need this to be fair. We need three Hebrews and three, three Greeks and, and uh, one, oh, well, we'll pick a proselyte. Well, they did. But, but they, they were all Greek. You say, how, Pastor, do we know that? It doesn't say that in the text. Well, because they all have Greek names, not Hebrew names. Stephen and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, all Greek names. Stephen and Philip, were, they're going to take leading roles in the next chapters, so we'll get to know more about them. The rest of these guys, we don't know anything else about other than what's right here in the text. Well, other than Nicholas, who goes on to become St. Nicholas, who we know as Santa Claus. I'm kidding. That's not true. Okay. Just made that up. Some of you are just falling asleep. You needed a little something. We don't know anything about these guys, including Nicholas. A few lessons for us from this. How do we apply this in our church and to us today? First thing we need to do is we need to engage the mission. 
See, I fear the great problem for most of us as we come to this is we're not even engaged in the mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be My witnesses. Well, maybe He's just talking to the apostles there. He's not really talking to us. We find out as we move on here in the book of Acts that everybody becomes part of the mission. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says that he is committed to us. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians as the royal us there. And he's saying he is committed to us, this ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, he says, as though God were making His appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Every one of us, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, He has committed to you and committed to me this mission to be witnesses of Jesus. I can't find one verse in the Scripture where Jesus left us here to see how comfortably we can live our lives until He finally comes back. It's not there. We are to engage the mission. Be witnesses. Be a witness. Another thing as part of that is we are to be involved in encouraging and supporting others in our mission or in their mission. That is what our real focus is next week. And this, it really is this whole month, but especially next week as we look at how do we as believers in this church get involved in supporting and encouraging the missionaries that we partner with. It is such a blessed privilege as Bobby pointed out earlier this morning. Second thing that we need to do besides engage the mission is we need to know our place in the mission. There is one mission, but there are many roles. The mission is to be witnesses, but there are many different roles in the mission. Not all of us have the same roles. The disciples or the apostles, I should say, do not say here that serving tables is not important. Or that it is a lesser mission or a lesson, a lesser part of the mission. What they say is it's not our part in the mission. It's interesting that the Greek word that they use here for serving tables, that Greek word is diakonos. What they say, they go down and they say that we will, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the Ministry of the word. Ministry is diakonos. It's the same word. They are both ministries. One is the ministry of tables, the ministry of helping the poor. One is the ministry of the word. They're different ministries, different roles. See, we need folks who will serve tables, who will care for the widows the needy. We also need those who will be the evangelists and the preachers and the teachers. We also need those who will be on mission in our schools. Students and teachers who will be on mission for Jesus there as witnesses. We need those who will be on mission for Jesus in the water ski club, in the gardening club among quilters and among crafters and among reenactors. We need those who will be on mission for Jesus in the business world. 
at Boeing, General Motors, and Express Scripts. We need those who will be on mission for Jesus in the political arena, looking to be salt and light, looking to influence our government officials, even running for office. We need those who will be prayer warriors for those who are on the front lines, like Bobby, like Mama B, the dear lady who, as I was growing up, confined to a wheelchair, couldn't do much else, but she said, I'm going to be a prayer warrior for Jesus. She prayed for scores of missionaries, scores of folks. She prayed me through high school. She prayed me through college. She prayed me through seminary. She prayed me through my first few years of ministry here when she died at 102. I miss that lady because she was a faithful prayer warrior. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. There are There is one mission, but many roles within the mission. The question is, are we engaged? And that brings up the question, how do I know my role? How do I know my role? And I simply say it's the same way the apostles in the early church did. We spend time in God's Word and time in prayer. And then with those, you simply get busy. <laughs> Start serving. Start serving somewhere. Whatever God puts before you, and then he'll move you where he wants to go. A little bit of Texas wisdom. It's hard to steer a parked car. If you've noticed that. Try to turn one around. Because you get it rolling. <laughs> you start moving. And if you spend time in the Word of God and time in prayer and you're moving, God will put you where he wants you. God was doing this in this church at this time, even though there was, there was dissension that came up and it was handled wrong, there were problems and all of this, God worked for good because overall these people had a heart to follow God and they were, they were, they were spending time in, in the Word of God and in prayer. And you know what God did? He worked through this to accomplish His purpose. Nobody, not the apostles, not the congregation, nor these seven guys, had any clue what God had in store for a couple of these men. But God used all this to get them where He wanted them to be. And we're going to see their story, Stephen and Philip, in a few weeks down the road. And lastly, don't get sidetracked. If we really put these truths to work in our lives, it will change some things for most of us. For some of us, it will involve being like the apostles and saying no to some things that have been distracting us from serving Jesus Christ as we know we ought to. We know I ought to be doing this and this and this, but there are things getting in the way of that and we need to say no. I'm not going to waste my time on those things anymore. And they may even be good things. They're just not the right for you, for me. For some of us, it's going to involve being like the seven who were chosen and it's involved saying yes to something that God is calling us to do. Something new that we, where we, we're going to engage the mission in a different way than we, we've been doing before. 
I know this is what God wants me to do. Maybe for some of you men, it's saying yes when they call you to be a diakona. <laughs> We're going to be looking for some deacons, some new deacons in a, over the next few weeks. Maybe coming next week and looking at how you can get involved in the missions program of the chapel. It may be some way in which you know God wants you to be sharing Christ. Saying, yes, Lord, I'll do that. For some of us, it might mean doing pretty much the exact same things that we're already doing, but doing them with a new or renewed focus. To be there and to serve there as a witness for Jesus. It's just saying, I'm not going to quit school, drop out of school. It's saying, I'm going to stay in school, but I'm going to be there as a witness for Jesus. I'm not going to quit my job, but I'm going to go to work tomorrow, not to earn a paycheck, but to be a witness for Jesus. You see, a new focus on the same things. We have a mission. Are we engaged in it? Or somewhere along the line, did we get sidelined? Father, forgive us because we are so easily and so typically distracted. The mission has left the forefront of our thinking and certainly has left the as the, the main thing in our actions. We've been so caught up in being comfortable. We've been so caught up in just going along. We've just been distracted by stuff, people, desires. Lord, I pray that You would this morning grab each of us where we are. Remind us of the great privilege and the great blessing it is to be an ambassador of Christ. And Lord, may we engage the mission for the sake of Jesus' glory and for the sake of those millions and billions in our world who need to hear that there is a God who loves them who sent Jesus to be their Savior. This we pray in His name. Amen.